Security whistle. All right, everybody doing all right? Um, so uh, previous to um, living in Europe and uh, doing missions in France and even moving here to Colorado, uh, my family and I, we did 10 years of college ministry in Oklahoma. And uh, I've had been in ministry long enough now uh, that I clearly have regrets. And uh, I, I have enough regrets about things that I did and did not do and things that you learn from. Um, I say that because... Probably one of the largest regrets that I have in my time doing college ministry was kind of how I oriented uh, to politics. Uh, what I mean by that, as being from Oklahoma, uh, you may not know this, but uh, Oklahomans in general uh, literally hate politicians. Um, and so the idea is you can always trust the devil and the politician to be the devil or a politician. And so that's kind of the posture that that we look at uh, when it comes to um, political leaders, political power. And the problem I had with that is that begins to seep out in um, how I spoke to college students and encouraged them. And I kind of just have this uh, negativity um, towards this thing called government and politics and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to see it as a God-given good um, that can be used to do great things uh, for the good of people, and not just always absolute craziness. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so I, I've just oriented to that a little bit wrong, and I feel like there's a place to enter into a conversation about raising up people within the church that engage politically. Now here's the problem I have with that. By and large, my default position on politics is it should not dominate the pulpit. Amen? Like that's not what this church is about, is... Politics. What our church is about is the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the gospel. But here's what's going to happen. As people come to understand the gospel, the gospel is then going to have consequences on how people live their lives in business and art and music and even things like government. Are you tracking with me so far? Here, here's the other problem. We can't talk about politics because... Uh, if you ever realize that, like Thanksgiving, there's two things you can't talk about, politics and religion, right? That makes people real ungrateful. And the reason why you can't talk about those two things is because it gets down to the core of who you really are and what you believe, doesn't it? You only thought you liked your uncle until they made a Facebook post. And you're like, I don't even like that guy anymore. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, I have... Uh, no desire to get in to tell you who to vote for or get into all that sort of stuff today. But we're going to get into where radical faith meets political power and it's going to get messy. And so there has to be, um, maybe for us, a better approach to engaging with speaking truth to power than just retreating. And I think that's what the church has been doing for a long period of time, is when it comes to the injustice we even see in our government, we have been, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to say it, we feel like no matter what we say, they're going to hate on us, and so we've just kind of retreated from the conversation, and we've allowed other voices to create our culture and to use lies at the foundations of that. And so, I, here's what I know, I, I want to get us radically passionate 
about missions and preaching truth and spreading the kingdom. And, and I care not about any of our political parties. I just care that that kingdom spreads also to government. Do you hear me? It has an effect there. And so uh, we're going to see that this is going to get messy. And so, um, yeah, let's just let's pray for God to help us and dive into it and see what happens. All right. If you're here, uh, would you just bow your hearts and minds? And I don't know what kind of tension you have in your chest or things that you drug into this room or distractions about other things that you have to do today. Would you just bow your hearts and your minds? And ask for the Holy Spirit to till up the soil of your heart. That you would receive what the word has to say. Even if it offends our political sensibilities. Even if it moves us to get engaged with stuff we don't want to get engaged with. Even if it's hard. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you're the one ushering in the kingdom, and you have my brothers and sisters here in mind as agents of that advancement. And so, Father, as we come into your word, would you make us serious about our time in history? passionate about speaking the truth no matter what the cost is. Um, give us a boldness that is not from our natural man and is not arrogant or conceited, but is meek, gracious, ferocious. God, I pray today that um, you would teach us to count the cost as many of our brothers and sisters all over the world are paying the cost for speaking truth. Father, we can't understand your word unless you help us. And so make us good to receive it, good uh, to, to, to live it, and to glorify you through it. And so come be the teacher, be the pastor, and um, guide us today, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Mark chapter 6, uh, open up. Uh, to verse 14. A couple uh, recap, a little bit of a jog for uh, Mark 6, starting verse 14. Of the weeks that came before, Jesus went home to his hometown and modeled what it was like to be rejected in front of his disciples so that they might be able to navigate rejection in their own life. Then, not keeping his disciples, which the word disciple just means learner, not keeping them just learners in a classroom, he sends them out into the laboratory to do practice of the things that he has taught them. And so he sends the disciples in community out two by two to spread the kingdom and to preach absolutely everywhere. And so last week we talked about what that sending was like. And so Jesus has taught them that I, like your father cares about you and he clothes the lilies of the field. He'll clothe you. Like don't, don't, don't look anywhere else for your provision except to me. And like, um, you know, he feeds the, the birds of the air. Like they'd heard him teach that. Now they had to go out on a short-term mission trip that is tailor-fitted for them to learn how to trust God. How to, we use this really kind of dirty word of learn how to depend on God. 
right? That we need him. And even after, in Luke 22, they're going to be able to take things like shepherd staffs and backpacks and money and maybe even swords and things on the deal. Even after that stuff is allowed in their mission endeavors, they are never going to outgrow um, the need to know how to lean on God and depend ultimately on Him and not money. All right? And so that was kind of the weeks that we had before. Y'all with me so far? It's quiet today. Are we okay? I started with the politics stuff. That screwed you up, didn't it? You're like, he's going to tell me to vote one way. Not, promise you. All right? Okay, so, so that's been the thing. They've been on this short-term um, kind of mission trip. And now, what is curious is that that mission trip doesn't end in our chapter until verse 30. So, like in verse 30, which we haven't read yet, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. That's the end of it. That is, they come back from the mission trip, and they meet with Jesus, and they do a debrief sesh, right? In between the mission trip in 7 through 13 and the debrief is a story about the beheading of John the Baptist. And we've seen Mark do this already. It's a theological sandwich. In the middle of a conversation about the disciples being sent out, and to do missions is this story about John the Baptist. So here's kind of the wider context of the passage that we're going to get in today. The disciples are desired by Jesus in such a way that he calls them. He gives them authority. We talked about this last week. And then he sends them out. That's the word apostolo. He sends them somewhere, right? Short-term, temporary mission trip. Which, let me just say this. All mission work is temporary. Have you gotten that so far? There, like, all mission work is temporary. The mission work will not be forever. It's got a shot clock. It's got an ending. There will be no mission work in heaven. Your chance to make an impact with your short, stinking life is coming to an end. And I don't care how old you are. Like it's, everyone's mission work has an expiration date. There's a day coming when we will not do this. It's, the war will end, the fight will finish. We are all on a short-term mission trip we call life. And you have one chance to make it count for something eternal. And so seize whatever amount of days you have left, regardless of cost. I love what the missionary Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is not just the mentality of missionaries. This is the mentality of Christians. Amen or oh me? Come on now. And that's the context wider for this story about John the Baptist. Or let me even narrow it this way. It will cost you to speak truth. There is no speaking truth that will not cost you. Always going to cost you. Okay, so that's, that's, that's what's happening. Their sacrifice, their service is going to be put up next to a story about sex and selfishness and political power. 
And those stories are going to be right next to each other on purpose. Okay? Verse 14. King Herod, I'm going to come back and tell you who he is, heard of it. Heard of what? This preaching, this Jesus, this proclamation. Okay? For Jesus' name had become known. How did it become known? Not only because of the miracles that Jesus had done, the preaching he had done, but because the apostles had been set out preaching two by two. Okay, so straight up, here's the deal we want. Let's preach church in such a way that we put the government on notice. Amen? Like we know we're striking a nerve and being strategic about our preaching when the name of Jesus becomes so known that people up in political office are trying to figure out what the mess is going on. Are you so far? Because the name of Jesus has been known. Some had said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who he had married. So he put him in prison. All right, so let's back up. 14 through 16 is current events with what's happening in 7 through 13 in the mission endeavors. The preaching is happening while up in political office, they heard it through the grapevine from the temptations, right? Word on the street, like, who is this Jesus? And so they're trying to figure out who he is. Herod's tripping. Because he had killed, in the past, John the Baptist. So verse 17 through 29 is going to do, do like, a, uh, it's gonna do like a Star Wars. It's going to go back to the prequels. You know what I'm saying? Nobody? Citizen Kane, it's going to flash back. Nobody's seen Citizen Kane. It's good. Four of you. It was black and white. <clears throat> it's really good. You should watch it. It's really good. It's the Mark Zuckerberg of his day. Was that Citizen Kane? All right, so it's back. It's going back and forth, right? And so that's what the Bible is going to do. We've got it. It's going to do a flashback and kind of explain why does Herod have this anxiety? All right, why is he tripping, thinking that this has to be John? And and where's the paranoia coming from? Let me give you a couple, a little bit of backstory. First off. Herod is a king, but he's really kind of like a governor or a ruler. Uh, this word is interchangeable, all kinds of forms of like lower government. This King Herod is, it, what makes this unbelievably confusing is that there are multiple King Herods in the Bibles. Anybody know that? All right. So the first King Herod that is the most kind of prominent is called Herod the Great. Okay, He was the Herod during the time of Jesus' birth that tried to kill baby Jesus, right? Because he heard that some other king had been raised up, people coming from the east to worship him. This dude is so paranoid about someone trying to take his, his power that he slaughters all the babies in the town trying to get rid of him. This is why Jesus is going to take a flight into Egypt, and not until Herod the Great is dead does Jesus return to Israel up into Nazareth. Herod the Great um, was not a son of David in the rightful king. Herod the Great was an Edomite. Edomites are descendants of Esau. So if you've ever read in the Old Testament about Jacob I love, Esau I hated, and how Esau and Jacob are in conflict with one another, now imagine the kingship of Israel has an Edomite on the throne. Well, how did he get there? 
He is a client king for Rome. Rome conquers Israel, and their habit was not to put a Roman over you. Their habit was to find somebody local to rule you. And so they chose Herod the Great, who is like this schizophrenic, lying, murderous, um, like lunatic, and they put him in power over Israel. He was an incredible builder. The, the temple that existed at the time of Jesus um, that would be destroyed around 70 AD was built by Herod the Great. He did that because not because he loved the God of Israel, but because he wanted to control and influence the Jewish leadership. He also built a town that you can go to today. The ruins are still there that Paul was imprisoned in called Caesarea. You can also go to a place, it's a huge mesa, think the like, like engineer mountain type high. They had this huge mesa at the top and they built a fortress at the top of it and enough water where you can hold out for like a year is naturally irrigated there. It's unbelievable called Masada. Uh, you can go there to this day and they got a cable car if you don't want to hike in the middle of the desert. <clears throat> and so... So he, he was paranoid the Romans might ever come take him in. So he built this like super deep fortress down by the Dead Sea that they could retreat to if things went south. All right. So he's a builder. He, 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 so Caesarea was to honor Caesar, right? Caesarea sort of thing. Temple to get the Jews in his back. So he's, he's constantly trying to gain power and do this. Herod had ten wives. Right? And if you're in my marriage class, and like on Wednesday nights, and you think you got problems with one girl, my dude got ten. He kills a few of them because he's afraid that they're trying to undermine his power. He has tons of children from these wives. And what makes it confusing about who the Bible is talking about, nearly every single kid that he has, he puts the name Herod in their name. He goes full George Foreman. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That dude had like 12 kids and he named like George and Georgina is every one of them. Right? So that's what he does. So it makes it confusing. The Herod, let me give you an example. In this story, just a precursor, Herod Philip lives in Rome and is married to Herodias. Who he, She leaves that Herod, Herodias does, and marries Herod Antipas. Confused yet? So that's why you don't name your kid all the same thing, right? Some of you, your kids' names start with the same letter and you call them whatever it is. Anybody? You forget like what your grandkids are called and you just call them, hey you, all right? Imagine naming them all the same thing. So that's where he's at. So he has these children, okay? Amongst these children, Herod Philip is not a ruler. He's living the life up in Rome. Herod Antipas, who this is talking about, was a, what's called a tetriarch. He had one-fourth of the territory of Israel to rule. He ruled Galilee in the north and the lands east of the Jordan River. So think about like northeast, okay? So that's where he's ruling. He, would, he had married a woman that was the princess of King Eratos IV, okay? He's Nabataean. You know Nabataeans because if you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, Petra, the city that they're in in Indiana Jones, that's Nabatea. Okay, that's where their capital was. It's a good Indiana Jones reference. This stuff, you're like, this sermon can't get any worse. <clears throat> oh, it can and will. So he marries because if you've ever seen any kind of political shows or like from ancient times, they use marriages to form allegiances. 
Nabatea was on their southeastern border, and so to secure peace, Herod Antipas, this Herod, married Eratos the fourth daughter. So it's like, okay, I'm marrying your daughter, so we've got an allegiance, so we're not going to attack each other. If you've ever played the board game Risk, this is like one of those kind of alliances. What happens is, Herod Antipas is called to Rome on business. He goes up to Rome. We learn this from history, not from the Bible. And he goes up to Rome, and he sees Herodias. Now, curious thing about Herodias. Herodias is the daughter of another Herod. His half-brother. Herodias is Herod Antipas's niece. He's also Herod Philip's niece, who she's married to. If you're, if you're keeping score at home, this is a family tree with limited amounts of branches. I'm not going to make an Arkansas joke um, because I'll get emailed. But it's weird that like there's kind of two groups that do the inbreeding thing. It's like royalty, never been so happy to be in the middle in all my life, all right? <clears throat> so one Herod has Herodias as a daughter. She's Herod the Great's granddaughter. She marries her uncle, Herod Philip. While they're in Rome, Herod Antipas convinces her to leave his brother and to marry him. This is full like Jerry Springer right now. I was going to say Ricky Lake, but nobody remembers Ricky Lake. You know what I'm saying? It's a train wreck you just can't look away from. Okay? So, like this, who is, what is going on here? So Herod Philip and Herodias have a daughter, Salome. That's who's going to do the dancing in this. Okay? So they go back. As a result of this, by the way, Herod has to fight, Herod Antipas has to fight a war against the Nabataeans because he broke, he divorced the daughter they totally kick his butt. He's losing until Rome has to step in just to be able to, like, fend him off, right? So here's what happens. That's the story. That's, that's, that's the, I don't know if it's a love triangle. It's a love octagon, okay? And you think TNT knows drama? You know what I'm saying? They don't know drama. <clears throat> Verse, where am I even at here? Herod heard of it. He said, John, who I bet has been in prison. So how did he behead him? Verse 17. For Herod, this is Herod Antipas, who has married Herodias, who stole her, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Do you notice that the Bible does not call her his wife? That's a wicked burn. That's what we call that. All right? The Bible is not acknowledging her as his wife. That's here or there. Because he had married her. Verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod. This is not a one-time deal. He had been continually saying it, preaching it faithfully and consistently to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You know what we call this in preaching? The direct method. That's not right. That's messed up on so many levels, right? He had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful. This is a direct reference back to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, where it is clear that you should not have your brother's wife. Now, that has a wider context, even in the congregation of God and the people of God, that you should not be wife swapping and wife stealing and all this sort of stuff. But he goes straight to her and says, you should not have 
your brother's wife. And the, the, the law of God, the way of God has said that what they are doing is wrong. Straight up. Now, if you're, some of you, anybody been to a southern church? Like deep south, I'm talking deep south, where they draw out words. You're like, you do that, kind of. You know what we call this in southern churches? Meddling. Here's what meddling is. Meddling is, you were preaching to begin with, but then when you started talking to us, you were meddling. Basically, anytime a southerner is convicted over what is being preached, they call it meddling. Please talk about somebody in another building, some place else, but when you start talking about things that are right here in our doorstep, preacher, are you meddling? Right? John would be indicted in the South as meddling. Why? Because he is preaching. It's not, it's, by the way, I just want to notice here, it's not John's personality that gets him in trouble. It's his preaching. And, and I want to point out very clearly, what is it that he is preaching against that gets him in so much trouble? What is it? Here's what he's preaching against that gets him in so much trouble. He's preaching against the sexual ethics of those in power. He's preaching against the sexual ethics of those in power. And they're going to kill a good man because he won't sign off on what they're doing. He's not going to clap. He's not going to celebrate. And he's not going to applaud. He's going to call it wrong. He's not going to look the other way. He's not going to back down. He's not going to stay silent. He won't call it good just because it's popular or because they're in power. Let's bring it into our, our day. Tell me what will get you in more trouble now in our culture than during Pride Month saying what the Bible says that homosexuality is not only not good for you, it's cursed and it's wrong. Now, I say this with people that I, I minister to on the other side. I says, I ain't got to go to the Bible. Let's go to statistics and talk about what bodily, when it comes to disease or what it comes for long-lasting relationships. Let's go, let's go even to statistics we can agree on of whether this practice is good for your health, is good for your mental health, is good for your soul. Let's go and we'll talk about homosexuality from, from an outside. I can do that from apologetics. Now, I'm not going to do that entirely because there is a God who created you who determines how sexuality works. And I want to come in and talk about that. But listen, I love you enough. Let's engage with this. I've never been afraid of a homosexual person in my life. I don't understand the term homophobic. I ain't afraid of nothing that has to do with that. I think God, God has a gospel of grace that the love of God should go to them as well. And I, I'm not afraid in any point to talk to them about this. But here's what's going to happen. In the very moment that you start to say, yeah, I, just, I, I can love the person and disagree with what you're engaging with. It's like, no, 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 no. If you're not celebrating what I'm doing, you're a bigot. Okay, okay, right? Or how about this? We live in a culture in our town where parents feel pressured or that it's popular to transition their kids from being a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy. That's here in Bayfield. That's Durango. That's our county. And they are literally putting hormones inside their kids because they want to have a trans kid and not just like a normal kid. Like that's here. 
So if I start to say, hey, I think that it's some sort of like wicked child abuse that you're putting hormones in your kid at eight years old because they like to play with G.I. Joes or blah, blah, blah. Like if I start to say that, is there, is there a thing I could preach against in our culture that would get me in more trouble than talking about the wicked sexual ethics of our culture? I don't think so. John couldn't find a more offensive, and, and look at the result of, of him speaking truth to them. It's a grudge. It's hatred. I, I just see this as, it's not right, it's not good, it's cursed, and because I love you. I've, we talked about this last week. The way Christians love our neighbors is we call them to repent. Calling people to repent, to turn from sin and return back to God is how we love our neighbors. That sin used to kill me. That's, my sin used to curse me just like that. I'm trying to turn from it and get right with God and walk with God because that is the blessed life. That's the best way to live. And because I love you, if you walk in stuff that curses you, like I, I, it's hard for me to love you if I can't try to help pull you out of some of that mess. It's just not going to go good for you. And we can make it popular and decrease the shame and whatever. But because I love you, I've got to call you to repent. The way Christians love our neighbors is we call them to repent in the same way we're trying to repent ourselves. Amen or oh me. So here's the deal. Verse 19 is going to say the response to John's preaching, which the Bible is going to say of John, born among women, he's like top notch, right? I mean, they got some top shelf. They ain't got this bottom shelf Bayfield preaching you guys have to put up with. He's actually all right kind of preacher based on what the Bible's saying, right? And the response to that in verse 19 by Herodias, and Herodias had a grudge. Some versions will use the term nurse a grudge. The word here is going to be possess or to own or to hold. It's almost like holding a child and nursing a child. She's going to nurse a, a grudge. We call this working on a real good mad. Because hell hath no fury. Like a woman scorned. Right? Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. She could not. So here's the thing. Herodias had a grudge. Which the nursing a grudge is like a really interesting picture about nursing a grudge? You think that you're holding on to sin, but the picture of the Bible is, you think you possess it, but it's really the thing that possesses you. And the sin that you hold on to causes you to kill the good things in your life. What are you holding on to? That if you hold it all the way to the end, It'll just poison you all the way. What kind of grudge and bitterness do you got? What kind of sin are you holding on to that is going to do nothing but kill the good things in your life? Because Herodias has somebody that loves her enough to speak the truth to her. And instead of repenting, you got two options. Either you're going to repent and bless the person that is calling you to repentance. See, in the Proverbs, it says a wise person loves to be rebuked. It's the fool who can't be corrected. And so either she's going to see the error of her ways and be a wise person and bless the person that came and that corrected her ways, 
Or she's going to be like a fool that can't be corrected, nurse a grudge until like Jezebel, she tries to kill the prophet of God. Right? There's incredible parallels here between Herod and Ahab, Jezebel, and Herodias. And so she thinks she's holding on to a grudge, but really that's the grudge that's holding on to her. And it's just pumping out death. Have you ever been so bitter at someone or something that even people that you're not bitter at suffer the consequences of that bitterness? Have you ever resented someone so much and you're so full of anger and fury that like you bump into even somebody you love, like one of your kids or your spouse, and you just let loose? In one way, we hold on and possess a grudge In other ways, a grudge possesses us. And it's going to lead to the death of that which is righteous and that which is good. Her sin hurts the people trying to tell her the truth. How approachable are you? When people come and try to talk to you about your sin... Do you hurt the truth tellers? Because you know the fact, if you don't like the message, you kill the messenger. I mean, at one point when I was preparing this sermon, I was like, if this sermon gets too good, they'll start throwing rocks. Right? It's biblical. Okay, so 20 and 21 talks about why she's not able to kill her, John in her timing. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Okay, And he kept him safe. Now here's the thing. I want to say this over and again. Government or politicians may fear us as Christians or respect us as Christians, but we should never trust them ultimately for our safety. Because their provision of safety is a fickle matter. And as soon as the political winds blow a different direction in this chapter, they're going to execute John. In one way, he's trying to walk a tightrope between keeping his wife happy by throwing him in jail. And at the same time, the people regarded John as a prophet. And so if you kill John, you're going to displease the people. So like politicians, they're going to speak out of both sides of their mouth, put him in prison. And he's got a little bit of fear of him, a little bit of respect from him. He liked to hear him gladly, but he was perplexed about his message. And here's the thing. If the church goes into bed with politics to the point where we trust politics more than we trust Jesus, we're fools. Because that is not the source of our safety. Politicians are fickle, especially godless ones. So he kept him safe, and when he heard him, he was perplexed. This is a Greek word that has to do with He was confused. It's like he couldn't find no way. It's like this idea of like he couldn't put it together what this way of life would look like for him. He's perplexed about what would this look like in my life. So he, it's like here's this thing. He likes to come to church and hear the preacher. And he's kind of like, he's kind of awestruck by the the seriousness of which John is. And so he could set under some sermons. But the dude couldn't ever connect it to actually his life. And I'm afraid there's too many people that attend church just like that. I like the music. But I don't really worship. I like the preaching, but I'm not going to repent. I'm perplexed about what 
what it would cost me to actually get real with what the dude's saying. He was perplexed about the word. I, I met uh, with some of you uh, this week. I, I don't, I want to throw this out there in light of how I introduced this about great failures in not challenging people to step up and to press the crown of Christ into all aspects of life, including political office. We are a massive minority in Colorado as Christians. A massive minority. And I wonder what it would be like that if we had Christians... I, I mean, I, didn't, I just realized this week, by the way, that the dog catcher is voted on in Durango. Did y'all know that? You get school board, county commissioner, mayor, dog catcher. Christians couldn't win the dog catcher position in La Plata County. But we're going to try. All right? But I asked this question. What would it be like to have people, leaders in political power, who were not perplexed at truth, but that loved it? What would it mean to have people on the school board of Bayfield and Ignacio and Durango who didn't make decisions based on selfishness, but on what is good. That they're, not, they're led by virtue and not by lust. What would it mean for some Christians to say, the place I'm going to herald the kingdom of God and spread the kingdom of God is at the county commissioner position? That feels so strange to me. That you can, if you can make it better, why wouldn't you? And so I ask that instead of maybe having people that are like this, because if we abdicate and we step back and we retreat and we withdraw, that void is going to be filled by somebody and someone's worldview. And so I lay that before you. What would it mean to have people that go into leadership in various ways that are not perplexed about the word, but they're glad about it? You know what I'm saying? So here's the deal. Um, Verse uh, 21, look in your Bible. But an opportunity came. Pause right there. An opportunity came. If you're looking for an opportunity to sin, they will always come. If you're looking for a chance to cheat on your spouse, the opportunity will come. If you're looking for an opportunity... To do wickedness, there's always going to be that opportunity. Just like there's always an opportunity for righteousness. If you're looking for an opportunity to serve God, I promise you, seek after the Lord, you'll find it. If you're looking for an opportunity to sin, you'll find that too. I, I heard someone talk about like if you go out and you're driving like uh, down Interstate 40 or something and you say, think only of a red car you'll be surprised at how many, you'll literally only see red cars, right? Because your focus in some ways determines the kind of opportunities that you see and take advantage of, doesn't it? And so an opportunity comes like opportunities always will. And it says an opportunity um, came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' uh, daughter, well, let me pause there. First off, what is this birthday? First off, most Jews uh, did not celebrate regularly birthdays. 
It's more of a Western Roman thing. And Herod was infamous, almost that they had this phrase coined of how serious Herod was at throwing a birthday party and the kind of debauchery that would happen there. So what would this be equivalent to? This is the who's who of his kingdom. He's trying to have a fundraiser banquet, right? Not unlike Crossbar X. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) The fact that I just connected those could not be further apart. Um, So Herod's having um, a fundraiser banquet. He's wanting to gain clout. He's wanting to bring people in. They roll out the red carpet. Notice that it's mostly only men here, right? Many would say that this is... Men talk differently, act differently when it's only men. So they're wearing their Gucci, their Prada, they're wearing their suits, their military uniforms. And I don't know what they're going, I don't know what I compare this to. This is a, a business trip to Vegas, right? They're going to the Moulin Rouge, to the cabaret, right? They're going to the strip club and they're going to have a huge birthday bash. The wine is flowing, right? And they're getting rowdy, okay? And so um, the birthday is nothing more than an occasion for him to get all of these people together to increases power, right? It's an excuse to party. But the, the, the legend around Herod was that it was incredibly full of debauchery, lewdness, and evil. It wasn't the kind of partying where it's good and celebratory and righteous. It's the kind that's, that has to go to dark places because only sin can be entertained. And it says that when he calls all these guys together that something happens here. And I want to go to the next verse. For when Herodias' daughter, now we learn from the historian Josephus that her name is Salome, and that's actually his niece, and she's probably 14 to 16, a teenage girl. She came in and danced. So it's the Jennifer Lopez, Middle Eastern belly dance thing. She comes in, and it says that she pleased Herod and his guests. Right? And so I don't know that she came out the birthday cake, but we can kind of talk about what kind of dancing that this is. I don't think she's line dancing. I'm just throwing it out there. Right? This is not the first time nor the last time that woman has used lust to manipulate a man. Watch any spy movie about Russians. Right? It's pretty much, that's their, that's their day one stuff. All right? And his guess, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed, made promises to her. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. When I studied this with my sons, they were like tracking with me. As soon as I read that, one of my boys looked at me and said, what did he say? It's like, I know you guys are really good at sharing one of your toys. Think of, like, they were like, dad, half the, ki- half the kingdom? Half of it? It's like, son, one day you'll understand the combination of alcohol and women and and making decisions with certain parts of your... It's just bad, all right? Up to half... Now, what's crazy about this is, does he have a whole kingdom? No, he's a tetriarch of one-fourth of what his daddy had. The other thing is, it's on loan to him. It ain't even his to give away. This is like the guy who has a big house and car and boat and toys and side-by-side. That's a luxury item, right? It costs like a car. Okay, you got side-by-side, and it's all on credit card. And he brags about all the stuff that he has. Does he really have it or does the bank have it and you're loaning it? He has his kingdom on loan from Rome. Before you scoff at him too much, we basically have America on loan from China. All right? Different sermon. Okay, so, like, he comes in and is bragging the posture of his heart. He's wanting to 
He's wanting to flash in front of the boys. Look at what I'm going to do to reward this belly dancer, who's also my niece. Weird thing, okay? What is he doing here? He in pride is trying to impress people. Now, so I don't know what's worse. Politicians who make promises that they don't keep or politicians who make promises they should never have made and then keep them, right? Uh, Did that hit the right way? Do you understand what I'm saying? Anybody ever hear politicians talk from their deal and they make promises and vows and you sit back and you say, God, I hope he doesn't do that. Like, I I hope he doesn't keep that one. He's going to make a vow he shouldn't keep. Some politicians make vows and don't keep them. Others make vows they shouldn't make. And it's bad for everybody that they keep them. And so Herodias doesn't know exactly what to do. And like daughters are often to do, she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Can he walk it back? But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He's peer pressured. He thinks about the opinions of man, instead of doing what's right. He has lobbied to do evil. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, and he brought his head on a platter, and he gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, sort of like Joseph of Arimathea, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is political murder. This is abusing a position of power. This is succumbing to peer pressure. Lobby towards evil. Surrendering to lust. Now take this and put it up against the sermon we did last week about the missionaries going out. About having to be humble to depend on others, to depend on God, to serve, to sacrifice. You take the service and sacrifice that every Christian and every missionary should be, and you put it up against the lust, the arrogance, and the pride of this story, and you can just see we are going to do things differently. We are not going to do things politically the same way the world does. Now, I... um, The hunger for power and the selfishness of Herod is the opposite posture the disciples and missionaries are called to do, called to have when they serve and they sacrifice. So here's the thing. We talk about this book. I want to end here. It was written by John Mark, who had one foot in the door of the Jewish culture and one foot in the door of the Gentile culture. That's why he has John, which was a Jewish name, Mark, which is a Gentile name. And we talked about how peculiar that was because he was the most anti-Gentile, almost racist bigot that God saved. And once God got a hold of his heart, he's now writing this book. Uh, Largely, this gospel was meant for Gentiles, right? 
In particular, most historians believe that this book was written to those in Rome. To those in Rome. And in Rome, they are up against Roman emperor after Roman emperor, ones that will come like Nero, who will literally burn down Rome and blame it on the church and throw parties like Herod in his backyard, but on poles he would put Christians, put oil on them, and light Christians on fire to light the parties that he's going to throw in his backyard. That's what the recipients of this letter are facing and will face. And I think there's a few takeaways for putting in the middle of the mission a story like this. And here's maybe a few of my takeaways. I hope they're good for you. One, listen, my Roman readers. Count the cost and be willing to pay it, even with blood, to preach the word and spread the kingdom. Some messages you can only get across if it costs you your blood. Millions of our brothers and sisters are going through that all over the world. And largely, the people executing them come from the government. Millions of our brothers and sisters around the world, like the Roman Christians receiving this letter, are having to make the hard decision of this will cost me. It may cost me my job. It may cost me my property. It may cost me my life. Count the cost on the front end and be fearless in preaching the kingdom. That's the first takeaway of what this is. The second takeaway I would have from this is to put the world on notice. There will not be any amount of imprisonment or execution that will stop the spread of the kingdom of God. Does the execution of John stop the kingdom of God? And I don't care if it's in communist China where the church is growing like wildfire right now or in um, Cambodia or in South America, there will never be enough imprisonment and execution that will stop the spread of the kingdom of God. This tactic will not work. I love what the uh, early church father Tertullian said. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. It won't stop it. So don't fear it, church. And the last one, and I, I, I want to finish all on Jesus. Roman church, listen to me. Out there amongst all the pagans and the secular and the godless, step back and watch Jesus show you how it's done. Because what precipitated a political murder of Jesus was communion. Where he told them, this is my body and blood given up so that you might have life. It was Jesus who went to the cross willingly to take our grudges and resentment and bitterness and sexual sin and evil upon himself. He took it on the cross that there might be peace with God through the resurrection. And so if we need any uh, model or illustration of what it means to be a missionary and to use our, f our fleeting days in a valuable and meaningful way, look to Jesus. Because church, Jesus shows us how it's done. Amen? Amen. Okay, I, I'm done. You're done. All right. Can I, uh, can I pray for you? And then um, we're going to take communion. And I think it's just going to be great. Great timing. Okay? If you bow your heads. Uh,
I know uh, there are, while we're in here, there are some right now uh, that are going to risk losing their job in our current political climate because they're a Christian and they're going to be a faithful Christian. Would you pray for them? If that's you, would you pray, pray for your witness and to be faithful all the way? I don't know if it's in our church or another church, but surely God is going to call men and women who are glad in the word with holy lives, who are going to go herald the gospel and speak truth and bring justice to political positions. Would you pray for those people that, that, that are going into that lion's den? Would you pray for those that might be compelled to serve Christ and serve our communities? by things such as the county commissioner, to the dog catcher, to the mayor, to the governor. Pray for those that are already in office and have authority. Whether they know Christ or they don't, would you just pray for those leaders and those in authority? help it would you maybe go before the father and pray for so many of our brothers and sisters this year that are going to lose their jobs going to go to prison their kids are going to be taken away some are going to be crucified some are going to be beheaded our brothers and sisters all over the world they're going to they're going to they're going to lose blood over this thing would you pray for their strength their encouragement their faithfulness Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Because Jesus didn't back down from the cross, but took a cross that we might have life. His blood was spilt so that we might know that you love us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that are going to risk things and lose things so that they can be faithful and have eternal glory and reward for that. God, I pray for those in here and around our county that you're raising up maybe to, to make an impact and to serve on different forms of leadership in our county. God, make them steadfast, clear-minded, holy. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters all over the world that are going to have to literally take up a cross this year. We're going to have to suffer. We're going to have to count all things as loss. 
for the sake of knowing you and making you known. God, make them unfaltering and faithful. Make them light and darkness. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends in here. If there's one who doesn't know you, um, who hasn't surrendered all, I pray that they would see Jesus in his love on the cross as more valuable than silver and gold. God, thank you for the opportunity with whatever brief days we have left to serve you. By your Holy Spirit, would you give us grace to make them count? Make us faithful to the end, God. Then help us to die and go to our reward. Lord, I love this church. I love your word. Pray that you do great and mighty things. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen.